We've been, as promised, we've been in Luke 18 for a little while now, and uh, we're going to be there for a little while. But the big, the big topic that's going on in Luke 18 uh, that is, is the kingdom of God. And Jesus has been uh, at that now, and he's been describing both the nature of the kingdom of God, that it has that has come and that it is coming and that both of those realities, the now of the kingdom of God and the future expectations and completions of the kingdom of God are both tied to, to Jesus. You know what I was just about to do then? I was just about to flick my page up. Oh, I can't do it. I've got to turn. Now I've lost where I am. And he's also been talking about how the kingdom of God is to be received. It's to be received as a gift. It's something that isn't earned. And how it transforms people as it comes into their lives. It transforms them to be transformers themselves against the normative rhythms of sin and the disordered loves that we have and the desires that that come to live in opposition uh, to God and his design for life. The kingdom of God, as it comes in such a powerful way, though, is not a kingdom of of shock and awe and might and power uh, in the ways that might and and power is is usually used. It's usually used to to preserve the powerful and maintain oppressions and systems that keep people uh, marginalized, to preserve these these sort of things, to keep privilege and prosperity uh, going. Rather... It comes to disrupt these things and reverse them. And he's been describing the nature of those who will receive it. While the kingdom of God is gentle and humble, it does, however, uh, have this undeniable and irrefutable requirement of its citizens to be themselves uh, shockingly and powerfully transformed in their use of things like power and privilege not as assets for themselves to advance themselves and to find justification for themselves, but as gifts and resources to give uh, to praise to God, to, to well up an infection for God, to, to love God, and then to be used uh, to love our neighbours. Uh, Timothy Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavour, even says that even work, uh, taking the raw materials of creation and developing it for the sake of others... Is, is an expression of, of kingdom workers, is done for, for others and for the glory of God. The kingdom of God calls us to be people who would, who would move with a mindset of inclusivity rather than indifference towards the marginalised. And it redefines all relationships and it redefines who we would consider family. It's a call that abolishes status distinctions, and it's a call that asks us to be generous, to be people who give without expectation or expectation of return. It calls for behaviour that humbles self and elevates others. It calls us to actually die to ourselves and live a life in following Christ. The kingdom of God demands that we recognise and repent of, of sin and trust in the mercy of God to be justified before God, to qualify for having received this eternal life, to, to, to enter into this kingdom of God. Now in chapter 18, and we're only going to go verses 18 to 27, uh, we'll look at the end of this chapter next week. Luke records yet another exchange, this time between Jesus and a ruler 
who wants to know what he must do in order to inherit eternal life. Now, this, this uh, particular interaction appears in all three synoptic gospels. And if we take the combined description of this man from all three synoptic gospels, and that's just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have a person who is elite. We have this, this person who is a bit of a rising star and, and a bit of a figure amongst his peers. He's young, according to Matthew, which means not a lot until we add the fact that he's a ruler, possibly a civil magistrate, which is Luke's description. So this guy has risen to the top early against cultural norms, which is sometimes the reason why people doubt Matthew's inclusion of him being young, because it's not normal for young people to have ruling authority. Not only has, uh, is this ruler young, he, and that he's also ridiculously wealthy. Luke describes him as extremely rich, and Matthew and Mark both describe him as having great possessions. So this guy, he would be like someone we, we would expect to appear on the front of Time magazine or, or AARP, a man on the move, a man to watch, a man who's going to do stuff. He would have had, if he had like Instagram or, or Twitter, he'd be like Taylor Swift and Dwayne Johnson in the amount of followers that he had. If you were to get hold of his high school yearbook, it'd have most likely to succeed. And if you were to grab hold of his Sunday school teachers and those kinds of people, they would have said, yeah, we marked him out for ministry. Uh, he was gonna, he'd be a great worship leader and all of that sort of stuff. Just a real overachiever kind of a guy. And obviously... God has blessed him. He has the big four, wealth, power, time, and obviously blessing. Everything about this ruler's life from, um, from a young age projected uh, and affirmed that he was good. And he was good at being good. And that he deserved uh, good things to come his way. In every religious system, in every social system, this means that you are blessed and you are approved. However, Mark, in Mark's account of this lad, uh, we see that even though he has it all, even though he is blessed and he has all his stuff, he is also anxious. He rushes up to Jesus. He must get to Jesus. He's got a burning question that he has to have Jesus answer. And obviously because of his sense of entitlement, it just sees him push past the crowds. Just before this, Jesus has been uh, having little children come to him. So he probably knocked four or five of them out of the way as he went through. And nobody's surprised by his approach to Jesus. In fact, they're surprised not to see him already in Jesus' crew. Like Jesus has got a bunch of tradies and a sketchy old tax collector. Uh, if he could add this guy to his band, then that might improve his brand and get his PR going a bit more. But despite the fact that the whole entire world reassures this rule of this man, uh, that if anybody deserves to be included into the kingdom of God, it's him, there's still something nagging this ruler's mind. How can he be sure that the blessing and the privilege... And the prosperity that he has in this life will continue in the next. How can he be sure of salvation in the final resurrection? For all his security in this world, he is insecure, it seems, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to the next world. Do you know, do you know people like this? Do you, do you sense that sometimes? 
People that are never satisfied, no matter how much security they have, no matter how much they gain, they need more evidence of their approval. They need what they can't even see. So this guy, this ruler, approaches Jesus, this teacher who has been uh, doing a lot of talking about the kingdom of God and who is doing a lot of uh, backing up that that talk with with miracles that suggest that, that this guy, Jesus, as far as rabbis and teachers goes, is a little extra, is a little bit more than your usual run-of-the-mill teacher. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And on the surface, the ruler's question seems to be a polite one, a courteous one. But in reality, it betrays the ruler's sense of self-entitlement at a few levels. This, this commendations like this were used culturally at the time, you know, good teacher, as a way of um, garnering a reciprocating commendation. Kind of like when you compliment someone for doing something well, uh, that you actually know you're better at. So you're sort of forcing them to say, thanks, but you know, you're so much better at that. Kind of like, hey... Great game today, Doug. Uh, thanks, Mason, but we all know you're the best at playing putt-putt golf or, um, you know, that, that classic one. Hey, your hair looks amazing. And uh, oh, thanks, Mason, but everybody knows that no one carries reduction, reductionistic grey uh, like you do. So, all good. He's pumping up Jesus' tyres so Jesus can, in turn, it's culturally appropriate, pump his tyres up as well which he sees as being entirely appropriate, given his good position in life. Secondly, while there's nothing wrong with doing, as in the question, what must I do? There's nothing inherently wrong with that. God's commands are commands to do. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that, we are, that out of encountering Jesus, we find a motivation to go and do the good works, good works which God has predestined, planned for us. However, what? must I do to inherit eternal life reveals two misconceptions about eternal life, the kingdom of God. And that is that it's a fully futuristic uh, reality and not a partially present one. Like if, he, if, if this was real to him, he'd already be there. He'd already be understanding it. And the other one is that eternal life is not something that we can merit. Rather, it's something that we receive as a gift by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus. The idea that you can do something to earn eternal life, that you can enter the kingdom of God through good works, is the total opposite of what Jesus has been saying all through this chapter. In fact, ever since he turned up on planet Earth, the gospel of grace that Jesus has been teaching is that it's this free gift, and, and, and it's not just for a particular strata or, or, or group of people. It's accessible to the poor. It's accessible to the marginalised. You, you don't need some kind of achievement or attainment to get to it. Like it comes to you, no matter your standing or position. But this guy still feels like he has to do some grand gesture, some incredible act of philanthropic branding, uh, and on that basis that he will guarantee that he's going to enter into the kingdom of God. And he's sincere in this. Like his question is legit. 
He's genuine. He's genuinely seeking an answer. He, he's anxious. He, he wants to know. This guy's like, name your price, name the task, I'll get it done. It's what I've always done. It's what I always do. I can do this. There is a resting, though, unexamined sense of self-righteousness in this approach. One that has been affirmed by society. In a way, this, this ruler really doesn't have any categories, any other categories to see himself through. Like, he's good. He does good things. What else is there? To be honest, none of us really have the categories to understand um, life appropriately as Jesus would have us. We always sort of trend towards doing to gain things. We, we, we always default to doing in order to keep uh, salvation. Like we're, we're fine with saying, oh yeah, salvation's all grace. But then once we get in there, we start going, well, what have I got to do? What have I got to do to keep it? Until we encounter the gospel of Jesus that says, he does and we receive. He dies and we live. He takes wrath while we receive blessing. Once it's done, once it's done for us, then we are doing. That's Paul. So Jesus seizes this question as a teaching moment and does what he does best, and that's ignore the question at a surface level and then drill down. He wants to get in behind what's going on in this guy's life. He wants to get people thinking about their questions, thinking about their approach and their understanding of things. And as Jesus tends to do, he answers a question with a question which irritates some people why do you call me good that's an inflated commendation that anyone who is familiar with scripture would never use like bridge too far brother no no one is good except god right you would have read if this guy he would have read david's song of thanks presumably in first chronicles 16 8 to 34 that ends with this this amazing little line i give thanks to the lord for he is good like there's just a bunch of stuff that god does if you've got your bibles open and you're in luke 18 in luke 18 just tag just put there where where it says no one is good just put a little mark there that says i should go and read 1 chronicles 16 give thanks to the lord for he is good his steadfast love endures forever or you would have read psalm 34 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Or even Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then Nahum 1, 7. This is the verse that people have on tattoos or fridge magnets. The Lord is good, like, and a refuge in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. You know only God is good. Only God saves only God is completely powerful and only God uses that power to grant eternal life and save people. The Old Testament is all about how God saves out of his perfect goodness and we receive out of our sinful need. So what an interesting commendation and question you bring about you and I. Why have you gone where no other religious figure would dare to go, using good as the terms of reference? Why, why so casual with something so meaningful? Well, I think we can do this at times at various levels. We can casually, without examination, uh, present a case of acceptance into eternal life. 
into the to kingdom of God. Tell God how awesome he is. Pat him on the back a little bit. And then based on our dealings with our circumstances and how we interact with culture, say, hey, look at what I've done with the cards that I've been dealt. What more must I do? What more could I do? Jesus is asking us to examine that. Whatever the cause of this ruler's commendation, Jesus asks him to think about his words, to think about them in line with what is known about God. God is good. He is the only one who is perfectly good. And he uses that perfect goodness for our salvation. That's what God does. How deeply do you believe that? Have you tasted that? Have you taken refuge in that? And to think about what he knows about Jesus. Is he good? Does his character match that of God's? And could his goodness be used for our salvation? And if you choose not to rely on either, then just what do you think you can do to replace them? Can you really do be something that good? Well, Jesus has taken the initiative here and he presses it. He, He pushes into the ruler's understanding of God's law and its application into his life to see how uh, integrated the two are. And he does this via the Ten Commandments. And while Jesus doesn't reel off the full list or, or quote the ones that he does quote as they appear in Exodus 20, Jesus' use of this condensed list implies an understanding of the entire uh, relational responsibilities of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved by doing, let, let's, let's have a look. Let's see how you've been doing. You know the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother. To which our ruler friend is a little flat. This is not some grand gesture. This is not some noble cause. This is just every day. In fact, he's been living like this since, since he was a child. Like, haven't you, didn't you see Sunday school report? All of these I have kept since my youth. The ruler's response reveals a lack of intent to think, to self-examine his heart, and then to examine uh, the intent of each of the Ten Commandments. Like, what is the scope of that, and how is it truly uh, being applied in my life? Well, very simple in their mandate, and and, and something that we can achieve at a surface level, each of the Ten Commandments stands for a whole category of behavior. For example, the Seventh Commandment, which Jesus mentions first, forbids every kind of sexual misconduct. It's far more expansive than don't than just you know don't have an affair, don't don't go cheating on your wife. It's broken each time you desire after another person who is not your spouse. Has this man always had pure thoughts? Sure, he's married, maybe, never physically cheated on his wife, but he's, he's, has his heart and mind like never wandered? When, someone, when we hate someone, we are breaking the sixth commandment, which is second in Jesus' response. Has this man never thought murderous thoughts about another? Has in all of his... He's a very self-entitled person. 
Has he never kind of road raged? Has he never lost his mind at his kids? Has this man never said something that wasn't completely true or cherished something more in his heart than God? That's what Jesus is pushing at. Or has he kept these commandments at a surface level, at a visual level, at an unexamined level, at a level better than most, so he feels like he doesn't need to dig any deeper. He can just push across the resume that everyone sees and goes, I've done all this. Furthermore, each commandment has both a negative and a positive side to it. For example, when God says, do not steal, he is also telling us to be generous with what we have. To not be generous is literally to rob or to withhold from the poor. No one should take solely for themselves what God has provided for the whole of God's people. That's a, a good summary of a heart that, that, that has a desire like God's heart for the needy. Like it's not just gathering stuff for itself. Don't hoard stuff as a security blanket for yourself. Only to have moths and rust eat away at them and, and just be wasted. Remember we went through James, we looked at that. Your power and wealth is not a sign of God's generosity to you because you are good, but it is been given to you with the expectation that you will use that power and release your wealth effectively for the poor, for the marginalized. It's a gift. These commandments are designed to, to, uh, to give life to what it looks like to live as a citizen of God. They are designed to create a culture and a society that has a relational responsibility for others and demonstrate the love and the care of God toward others. And that is done by seeing them as God's good gifts and, and, and using them in denying sin's impulse to self-gratify, to self-honor, uh, to, to be self-esteemed and self-acclaiming. So if, so if they've integrated into your life at that level, then yeah, you've already done the grand gesture that's fit for eternal life. Jesus is after how completely do these commandments rule our hearts, his heart, shape our inner thoughts and desires, as well as our external words and actions. This is what Jesus wants the ruler to see. He wants to actually see, to do some examination and see that how unfit he actually is for the kingdom of God and how far off his surface level of good works are from being good enough. And because this man won't stop and examine, Jesus will make it painfully obvious if he is capable to live as consistently and relationally appropriate as the Lord demands that he should. And not for the first time do we see Jesus kind of diagnose uh, the real soul ailment of a person. What, what is really concealed within a human heart um, that our actions can actually mask sometimes. Luke is unusually uh, sparse in his detail about this. But Mark's gospel notes that upon diagnosing the true condition of the ruler's heart, like it says, and he looked at him. Like he looked at him and he knew him to the very bottom. Upon diagnosing the true condition of the ruler's heart, Jesus loved him. 
And he went after his heart. Jesus saw the ruler to the very bottom of who he was, saw the sin that he was not willing to acknowledge and examine, and loved him enough to offer transformation and hope and and a treasure in something as simple as following Jesus, transferring his faith from the things of this world to the goodness of God encountered in Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he said to the man, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now what Jesus has to say here is not a universal requirement. It's a case-based diagnosis. Selling off everything you have is not the grand gesture that gains you eternal life, nor is poverty a virtue that predisposes you to salvation. You know, we got guys like Abraham and, and Joseph of Arimathea who are all rich, who are all saved. No, the true and only requirement of eternal life is faith in Jesus, trusting in his works and not ours. What Jesus has unearthed in this, what holds this particular ruler captive, he has exposed where this certain ruler places his trust finds his meaning and his identity. The ruler's relationship with God and others is tethered to and hindered by his wealth and and the status that his wealth has, has brought him. And he is not willing. In fact, it saddens him to allow the law of God to come and fully invade his heart and and un you know release his grip on these things. So that he would, I guess, in turn, humbly renounce finding the meaning that he has through wealth and status. He can't bring himself to joyfully embrace the the contrasting life of the kingdom that uses power and wealth to lift up the poor, not maintain one's spot, not, 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 not kind of maintain one's privilege, but just releases it and lets it go. Faced with a wholesale transformation of how he sees the goodness of God being used in his life and how it should make him radically generous towards others because God has been radically generous towards him. He's sad. This has disrupted him. It's a kind of hardly strong enough word. A better word there would actually be he's distressed, he's grieved at this. He understands Jesus' instructions, but he chooses to reject it. Eternal life is a matter of values and affections of our heart, not merely outward religious activity and obedience. It turns out that from a very young age, this, all this ruler has done was live nominally, passively, comfortably with God's law, And it has not exposed his lack of love for God and his lack of concern for neighbor. It turns out that experience of the good life is really more desirable than eternal life for this ruler. And here we find a universal principle. And that is not to be mastered by anything other than God. Not to allow things like this guy's problem is wealth. We all, maybe that's our problem. We don't know, but not to be mastered by stuff, not to love something more than God. 
which if the commandments of God have been truly integrated into your life, the way they are designed to be, then you will not flinch at their application. You will not feel pain or distress or grief when they ask you to do to others what God has already done to you. And the only way that that is possible is if some greater desire, some, someone more desirable has taken the place of things like money, taken the place of things like status, something truly good. But the sheer impossibility of pulling away from the gravity of wealth, the drug of status, is too much for this ruler in order to embrace a world order that the kingdom of God creates. And that tension, that grief, that distress is borne out in Jesus' hyperbole here, saying that it's, it's more possible for a camel to make its way through the eye of a needle. Jesus seeing that he had become very sad, Jesus seeing that he had exposed essentially the idols of his heart said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, well, well who can be saved? Darrell Bock points out in his commentary, Jesus reveals that the self-focused security and dependence on wealth and status can shrink the door of the kingdom of God down to an impassable peephole, becoming a padlock against entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus' words would have been shocking to the audience, and they are shocked. Like, who can be saved? Because if the very best of us doing the very best of things cannot gain entry and cannot have eternal life in their own strength in doing good things, what hope does someone with no means to do good things have? If the very best of us are not fit for the kingdom of God, then who and how? At first, Jesus' answer is not too comforting. He agrees that salvation is not something that any person can earn. But then he reminds the disciples that salvation is not the task of people, but the provision of a good God. God will do the saving, as he always has. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The question is, are you willing to be saved? Are you willing to have your heart examined to the very bottom, to have the things that we hold on to uh, as our wealth and our status, whatever they might be, the things that tether us to this world and hinder us from loving God fully and loving our neighbours exposed and overmastered with a greater treasure, something truly good? Jesus' very unsatisfying answer at this moment gives none of the details, but just simply says, God can do that. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom, is that God has been, that this good work, sorry, has been done by Jesus. This is what God plans to do, will do. The human situation is not hopeless because of because a powerfully good God would give his life for ours because a powerfully good God would take what is hidden, sin in our lives, and then 
publicly deal with that himself before God. This is the grand gesture, if I can put it that way. I felt a little bit cheap saying it like that. The, the death of Jesus. To, to affect deep heart change in us. The grand gesture that would conquer even death and establish eternal life as a gift to anyone who would simply taste and see. To anyone who would come and take refuge. To anyone who would in faith live at a, as a citizen of heaven and follow Jesus. Trust their life to Jesus. What Paul would later describe as the power of the gospel in places like Romans 1, 16 and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. The power of the gospel is the kindness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God to break what tethers our hearts to sin and to break what tethers our hearts to the things of this world and warm them with affection and love for God and generosity and service and good works towards our neighbours. But the question is, are we willing? Are we willing to be saved? Are we willing to have Jesus come and replace the things that our hearts hold dear and become that which is most dear? It's what he's pushing across the table. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you again for the, the challenge of this gospel you keep at our hearts, asking us, have we, have we truly um, given our lives over to you? Have we truly encountered the kingdom of God, this gracious gift of love and life and forgiveness of sin that we might then go and live in accordance uh, with your word and with your will? Our prayer this morning and is that we would continue to pursue understanding and knowing who Jesus is to the point that we would find him more desirable than anything in the world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.